Thank you for downloading this sermon from Christ the Word Church. If you would like more information on how Christ the Word is reaching, raising, and teaching generations in Northwest Ohio and Southeast Michigan, please visit us online at ChristTheWord.com. Our passage this morning continues in Matthew 24. Will you stand with me for the reading of God's Word? Matthew 24. Verses 3 through 14. Now, as he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, See to it that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you are going to hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and in various places there will be famines and earthquakes. But all these things are merely the beginning of birth pains. Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. Many false prophets will arise and will deceive many. And because lawlessness is multiplied, most people's love will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, he will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom shall be proclaimed in the whole world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. The word of the Lord. Join me in asking God, raise your hands if you would, to ask God to bless his word. Father, we commit your word to your power and to your Holy Spirit and ask that he'll speak through men, Father, through me, and that your word will live in our hearts and that you'll give it power, you'll bring conviction, that you will show us your your truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. I, I have not looked forward to preaching on Matthew 24. Not because there are things in it that are confusing, nor because there are differing views of it, but because it's, it's to me, and honestly, if you continue through the remainder of Matthew, it's filled with really hard things. And so I haven't looked forward to this and what follows until perhaps chapter 28 when Jesus is risen because we're on an express train here. It's, a, it's going straight through to the death. And everything that follows from here is, is dark in one way or another. And yet it's light. I can't deny that it's light, nor can you. There is light, it is hope, it is everything, but the cost of it, the, the price of our hope is just so great. And the way that it, that great cost borne by Christ illuminates our sin, the reality that we put him there and that our sins required this is, 
It's like looking in a... <laughs> it's like the day I took the, the first time I ever used a, a pressure washer back 24 years old and I, I saw dog dirt on the ground and I went... <laughs> And gave it a blast, 5,000. It was a professional one, 5,000. Then I went and looked in the mirror. And I was filled with dog dirt. I mean, it was plastered across me from head to toe. Well, that's, that's these chapters. That's what's revealed here. And these are difficult verses that we're in. They have been the source of conflict in the church. They've been the source of disagreement and for some young people they've been the source of fear <laughs> I can remember reading this as a kid and having in some respects almost the same feel I have today at 63 when I read it I read it and I go "Ooh, whoa that is dark that is that is scary it's it's scarier than the old you know, atom bomb drills that we had occasionally in the 60s. At least with an atom bomb, it's over. But this speaks of an ongoing series of things that seem to get progressively harder. So I didn't like it as a kid. And I still find it challenging as an adult. But it's the Word of God and it's there for, for your good and for mine. And it's spoken by Jesus for a reason and we must look at it and think about it and deal with it because not to do so, well, would be unfaithful and it would be denying that all scripture is God-breathed and profitable. That all scripture has a point and a purpose and that all scripture is for our good. So we come to these verses that speak about the end and the disciples have just heard Jesus say as he comes out of the temple and they point to the temple buildings and the massive stones, massive. I've seen some of these foundation stones. They're still there at the Wailing Wall. Massive stones that are at the base of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem on which Herod built up the mount so that it would have a foundation for his expanded temple much bigger than Solomon's temple. And so they've come out of the temple and they, they kind of mutely point you know, Jesus because he's just said the whole city's done. He's prophesied the end of Jerusalem. He has said to them, I leave your house desolate, empty, destroyed, ruined. And I'm not coming back, he says, until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, until the whole world acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, the Messiah, Israel's hope. He says, you're not going to see me. You will not see me. And of course, they're going to see him over the next few days. But what he's saying is, this is my last time. I'm not coming back here to the Temple Mountain. I'm not coming back to these things until I come in victory. So the disciples go out and they look and they say, huh, really? All of this is going to be destroyed? They point to the temple buildings and he says, do you not see all these things? Truly I say to you, not one stone here will be left upon another which will not be torn down. And that's the 
precursor, the introduction to where we begin today. This is what has happened. And so he goes across to the Mount of Olives and his disciples come up to him privately. I said a few weeks ago it was a larger group, but it's very clear as I've read the Bible and as I've looked at the, this is a private discussion. It is not public. I was wrong when I said that this was his last big sermon. It is his last big discourse or sermon, but it's delivered to a private group, not to a large group. So his disciples come up to him and they, it says, privately ask him, tell us when will these things happen and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And so they assume that when these things happen that he's spoken of, the tearing down of the temple, the destruction, the house being left desolate of Jerusalem, that this will be the end of the age. And Jesus says to them, ah, no. Don't think that these things are simultaneous, that they are at the same time. No, in fact, the tearing down of the temple and the destruction of Jerusalem is not the end of the age, but my coming back is much later than that. And so at that point, he begins to speak to them and says, all right, you want to know what the end of the age is looking like, well, it's going to look like this, and it's a long ways off, and my return is not going to be until a number of things have happened. And he details a number of the things, all of which are, well, I don't know which of them is more frightening. All of them are frightening, each of them in their own way. The idea of many Christs coming, or many deceivers coming, saying, I am the Christ, and, and the deception of many people saying, oh yeah, that's Jesus, that's the Christ. It, it seems impossible that this could take place. And of course, we haven't seen this to the degree that I suspect we will. Certainly we didn't see it before the destruction of Jerusalem. There's going to be wars, there's going to be rumors of wars, and these have been throughout time. That doesn't seem to be special, but yet Jesus says there's going to be wars and rumors of wars prior to this time, perhaps a time of more awful warfare, maybe not, I don't know, but wars and rumors of war, nation rising against nation, kingdom against kingdom. And famines and earthquakes, these have been things that have been, that have been part of human life for centuries, for millennia. But these things, he says, these bad things are just merely the beginning of birth pains. And then he turns from the bad things that involve everyone, you know, global bad things, wars, nations, rumors of wars, earthquakes, famines. And he turns to, to address disciples directly and he says to them then they will deliver you to tribulation you're going to be given over to tribulations to trials trials and tribulations you're going to be you're going to be given over they're going to deliver you to tribulation and they will kill you and you will be hated by all nations because of my name And at that time, many will fall away and will betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and deceive many. 
And we're going to look at this portion next week, but still we need its flavor. And because lawlessness is multiplied, massive lawlessness, most peoples, the love of many will grow cold. That's the love of God, the love of Christ. And so a great defection from Jesus, many people grow, their love grows cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. The gospel will be proclaimed and the whole world is a witness, then the end will come. So I want to speak to you of two things in regard to this passage this morning. One, the, the rebellion of your heart that takes place if you deny the clear import of what Jesus says in these verses. It is, it is a denial of God's word to take this and explain it away. It's a sin. There is clear teaching here. We don't know the time. We can't identify all the things in every way, but there's a clear teaching that he's warning his disciples that before his return, things will go, 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 go. And then these bad things that are just the primary initial signs will give way to an even harder time when many will fall away. It will be so bad. So the first point is the sin of denying the clear import of these verses. Yeah, it's wrong. The second point is the power that is implicit in embracing what Jesus says here. The power that is yours if you will embrace what Jesus says. Now, uh, this passage has ignited passions over the years and I spoke of some of those last week and it seems kind of a, a strange passage initially to ignite passions and to spur intense disagreement doesn't seem like the kind of thing that should have Christians at odds with each other and denominations formed and people leaving denominations, but it has been that. Maybe not as much as some of the doctrines in the Bible, some of the teaching of the Word of God, but this has been a source of that. Um, you would think that this might not be as, as prone towards the incitement of conflict as some other things. And uh, like how should we baptize only adult believers or their children? Now, these, that seems something worth fighting about, right? Yeah, I get that. Or, or whether Jesus is bodily present in the, the elements of the Lord's Supper, communion. That's been a, a matter of debate for thousands of years. And, it's, and people have separated over that. And you may say, what does it matter? Well, it does matter because there are implications of whether or not Jesus is bodily present. If, if he becomes bodily present and replaces the, the wine and the, and the bread, then, then there are questions about how that happens. And those who believe he's bodily present believe that it happens as the pastor or the priest consecrates it. And that the power of the priest is to make bread and wine into body and blood. Some power that exists within his authority. 
by his authority, it happens. And you, you can understand very quickly that this makes the person that's celebrating communion a very potent person with great power and authority, this view. It also leads to the, the place where the, the elements are being a, an altar, where a physical sacrifice is made. And so we have, as part of this, the idea that Jesus is, is re-sacrificed every time we take communion. Well, these are things that are important. You can understand, even if you don't have never thought about it before, how these views would would divide people, how there could be differences that would be important. But the question of this passage, how could this passage become a source of conflict and fighting? And yet it has been and it remains such a passage. I have a friend who I was with about 15 years ago. I was talking with him about his daughter. And uh, she was dating a guy and... He's a pastor. And I said to him, so, I said, once your daughter fell for a guy, you were fine with him, right? I mean, you trust your daughter. You know that she's a woman who loves God. And, you know, so it was pretty much pro forma when he came to you and asked for your daughter's hand. And I, I assume that. To my mind, if you have to say no at the last minute, you've, you've messed up. You know, it should be a pro forma affair. And, uh, and he looked at me and he said, oh no. No, it wasn't pro forma at all. I said, well, what were you looking for? And he said, well, I had to be certain that the man who asked for my daughter's hand is post-millennial in his views, which means he believes the church experienced most of these things before Jesus, before the destruction of Jerusalem. And then the church, after this, these events are over, goes on in, in glory. Now it has setbacks, but he believes it goes on in glory and glory. And uh, he said, no, I, I couldn't let my, my daughter marry a man who was not post-millennial. I said, no, you're kidding, you know? I mean, two-thirds, three-quarters of the American church is not post-millennial, maybe 90%. And he went, oh, no. Oh, no. He, he looked at me and said, I'm not going to have my daughter marry a gloomy Dutchman. <laughs> oh, okay. This particular brand of Dutchmen doesn't believe in, they're not post-millennial, they, they believe that these sufferings still lie ahead, and he wasn't going to have his daughter marry such a man. And uh, I thought to myself, well, I kind of get that, because I know Andrew, you know, and I know how, where, where's Andrea? We all know how Andrea has suffered under your gloomy Dutchman, right? <laughs> and so... There are reasons that may at first strike you as silly, but are actually quite, quite real. And as I understood what he was saying, I kind of sympathized. I didn't entirely agree with the way he would determine whether his daughter's suitor was a gloomy Dutchman or not, you know, a gloomy guy who thought the, the, the church was going down in flames. But I sympathize because the, there is an opposing view that is taught all across America today, that is the view of 95% of the people, which is that things get bad and get bad, and then before things get really bad, 
God pulls his believers out of the world so they don't have to go through tribulation. How many of you have heard of this view? It's common, isn't it? And this view says, oh, you get pulled out. You get pulled out, and then if you come to Christ during that period of seven years, the tribulation, if you actually become a Christian, there will be Christians on earth after all the Christians were pulled out, but some will still read the Bible and come to faith. Then you become, well, kind of like the left behind books. You become the tribulation force and you run around like Jack Ryan in the Tom Clancy novels fighting the evil people that have taken over the world. Right? Now, you know I'm talking about the views of the vast majority of Americans. And the Left Behind series sold millions upon millions of books based on this premise that all the Christians are pulled out, but there are a few Christians, and they're left, and they have to go through the tribulation, and they fight. And it's just like the hunt for Red October, but it's Christian, and it's demons rather than Russians. And you go, whoa, all right. And what you have, therefore, in between these two views, aggregating them and bringing them together, not in the middle between them, but when you bring them between them both, you have two views that say you shouldn't suffer, all right? That the end times will be for the people who, well, that few people who come to Christ, but all the good Christians have been pulled out already, Or the other idea is that things get better and better and we take over the world and we usher in the reign of Christ. Now, I prefer that latter view to the former because the church has power and the church is victorious. And the former view is evil because it tells people you don't need to suffer. And Jesus never says it. And so you have to take a passage like this and you have to twist it into a pretzel to come up with a form of of tribulation, a form of end times where the Christians are gone and they're happy and everyone else suffers. Because Jesus is saying, you, you. But let me add, it is impossible to understand all these things as having taken place before the the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Jesus is talking to his disciples at this point, and he's speaking to them and saying, you. And the question is, is he speaking to them or to those who will follow them? Who is he addressing? Is he having them understand something that's going to apply in their lifetime, or is he speaking to them so that they will pass it on and it will be written in the Gospels and it will be given to us for our benefit. If he is meaning that all these things are happening by 70 AD or the vast majority of these things are happening by 70 AD and then the church goes off in power and great power and greater power and it takes over the world and it's glorious and we don't have to be pessimistic, gloomy Dutchmen because the church is winning. Well then... These, these men are, are going to expect these things to take place. It's a warning to them and not to their followers. But I want you to know, did Jesus not know the lives that his, his disciples were going to lead? Of course Jesus knew. He told Peter, you're going to be led when you get old by one that you don't want to be led by. Your little child will lead you by your hand. And it was very clear to everyone that Jesus was saying to Peter, you're going to be killed. And so Peter turns and says, well, what about him, John? 
uh, uh, what about him, Jesus? And he's pointing to John behind them. And he says, if I want him to remain alive until I come back, what is that to you? You must do what I've called you to do. Jesus told Peter he was going to die, and he did die. And he died somewhere between seven and six years before the end of Jerusalem. This warning wasn't for Peter. You understand? It was for Peter to tell others about. It wasn't for him. He was gone, and Jesus knew it. But it's not just Peter. Philip, the, the apostle Philip, was stoned in Tunisia to the best of our understanding. And these things are imprecise, but they give you an idea. In Tunisia, northern Africa, in 54 AD, he was gone. Peter was killed in Rome. Paul, the apostle, killed in 63 to 65, maybe 67 AD in Rome. They weren't in Jerusalem. Andrew, Bartholomew, same name, same guy, was killed in, in India. He was killed in India in Mumbai in 70 AD, and that's pretty firmly established. Thomas was killed in Chennai, India, in 70. Matthias, who was chosen to replace Judas, was martyred in Judea, the only one, it appears, who lived in Judea in 69 or 70. Judas, who was also known, the second Judas, Thaddeus, was crucified in Iran in 72. Andrew was in the region of the Black Sea, Turkey, Greece, up around in that area, and he was crucified in 70. Simon the Zealot, to the best of, there's a, a lore, and it's a long and ancient lore, which says that Simon the Zealot went to England and was crucified there in 74. We don't know about, that's one of the lesser. Matthew went to Egypt and Ethiopia where he was killed in 70. James the Less was thrown from the temple and killed in 62 or 63 AD. James the Greater was, of course, killed in 44. Herod had him killed. That's in the Bible. Bartholomew, India, Simon Peter, Rome, Paul, Rome. The majority of them were dead by the time Jerusalem fell. Only one was even in Judea when Jerusalem fell. Is this warning for these men? Or is it for those that are going to be taught by these men? And so we look at these verses and we say, well, if we take it seriously and we believe it's not all accomplished, then what am I going to do? What am I going to do? What lies ahead for me? And if you're young, it's, it can be terrifying. Because this is not a nice series of events. And the first ones that are universal are in many ways, the wars, the earthquakes, the famines, are less frightening to me at least, and were when I was young, than the end ones. That you will be persecuted, you will be put to death. People will hate you because of my name. And those things haven't stopped. And so if your theology is a theology of we don't suffer, we get out of here, we get out of this, it doesn't apply to me. First, I'd say, I don't think you're being faithful to the word of God. But second, you're ignoring the blessing that's found in thinking about these verses. Because 
Suffering is the path of glory. Suffering is essential to glory. The Bible tells us that our Lord and Savior endured the cross and scorned the shame of Calvary because he saw the glory. Who for the glory set before him scorned the cross, enduring its shame. It was glory for Jesus to suffer and it's glory for you to suffer for God's sake. And we connect suffering with sin. And we think that suffering isn't something God wants his children to go through and nothing could be less true. I look around this church and I see some of you who I know have suffered and others have seen suffer. And I say, yeah, that suffering in that life is the cause of glory today. I remember going to the hospital with a young woman in this church multiple times as she had operations because of a genetic condition. Time after time, going to the hospital with her, with her parents. Operation after operation. And now she's this glorious woman of God in our midst. Glorious. And is it divorced from the suffering? And now she has a little son who has the same condition. And we look at him and what do we see? We see glory. We see glory in that little boy. Glory. The glory of God. Disciples ask Jesus when they see the blind man, who, who sinned that this man was born blind? And Jesus said, well, his dad sinned and his mother sinned. They're just awful people. And therefore, that's why he was born blind. Those of you who know the Bible, you know I'm making that up. Jesus said no one sinned, neither his parents sinned. But this man was born blind. Why? For the glory of God to be revealed. When you suffer, when you suffer in whatever way it is, whether it's physically, emotionally, in a, in a difficult marriage, whether it's the suffering of being fired from your job because you profess Jesus, when you suffer, the glory of God is revealed if you're his child. There was no group that more believed in Jesus during his lifetime here on earth and his years of public ministry than those who suffered. The widow of Nain believed in Jesus, whose son was raised, who saw Jesus raise her son. The blind men, the lepers, the crippled, the lame, they believed in Jesus. The wealthy people, the righteous people, the people who had it all didn't know the glory of Jesus. But the sufferers came to know the glory of God. Blind Bartimaeus, standing by the side of the road, hearing that Jesus goes by, is going by, stands and screams, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. What glory to stand there in need and say, I need you, Jesus. And Jesus comes up to him and 
and heals blind Bartimaeus. Blind Bartimaeus suffered and so he believed. I spoke of my brothers last week, the three who died, the two who died before I was born, the one who died later, and then my fourth brother died when he was 39 of cystic fibrosis. And when I've told you this before, but I repeat it, when my second brother was dying of leukemia, my parents went to a a healing service where there was prayer. They had prayer for little Danny, a five-year-old, and my parents believed he was healed, absolutely believed it. And they went to their doctor and said, thank you, we don't need your services anymore. Our son has been healed. And he said, well, I hope you're right. And then the leukemia came storming back. It was remission. And he died. And there were people in the Christian school that my older siblings went to in the 1950s who had encouraged my parents to go to the prayer service. And they told my brother and sister, my older brother and my older sister, that the reason Danny died was that their parents didn't have faith. This is where you end up if you have ruled out suffering. You end up saying, well, he wasn't healed. He must not have had faith. My parents understood through that that God is good. And praise God they did because they kept on having kids when their friends, their Christian friends said to them, you should stop. Don't have more kids. Don't you know that you're passing on hemophilia, cystic fibrosis? And of course, the worst trait of all that we inherited from my mother, a sharp temper. (laughs) But I praise God that my mother and dad said, no, we're going to have children. Even if they die, we're going to bear children. Because the value of a life is not in the lack of suffering, but in the suffering that's endured for the glory of God. And so when my fourth brother died, my mother was with us. She was 81 or 82. It was her fourth son to die, and he died at 39 with four little children. And my mother was waiting for his death at our house. She hadn't moved out here yet. And she was sitting on the side of the bed when, well, the call came in the middle of the night when I went into her room, hearing it was 3 a.m. that my brother had died. I went into the room where Mud was, and I said, well, Mud, it's that time. And she got this strange smile on her face and sat there, eyes kind of far away, and I looked at her and I said, what are you thinking, Mud? And I've told you this before. She said, the glory, the glory, the glory of suffering for Jesus the glory of knowing Jesus as your Savior, the glory of submitting to the suffering that God has called you to go through rather than taking the easy way out, the glory of the woman in this congregation who says, my husband is terrible and he doesn't appear to love me or to love God, but I made vows and I will suffer rather than take the easy way out. The glory of those who here in our congregation say, yes, children are hard. And yes, it's, it's hard on my body and it's hard on my social life. It's hard in every way. 
but it will lead to a harvest of glory. So I'll continue to have children. The glory of our mothers. The glory of the lives of men in this congregation who give their money, give it generously and sacrificially because they don't believe that money wins in the end, but that Christ wins. The glory of suffering, the glory. Much of your suffering is going to come through people. It's very clear here that a lot of the suffering comes because of people. The glory of you saying, I will endure. I will not cast this person out of my life. I will not ignore them. I will love them as Jesus loved me. I will suffer because Christ suffered for me. The glory of Christian love for our enemies and for those who persecute us and those who hate us for the name of Christ. The glory of that love. There's glory in suffering. It's full of glory. Don't don't reject suffering. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Jesus and his love for those who suffer, that he came for the sick and not the healthy, for sinners and not the righteous. We are sinners. We are sick. But we have known and been touched by the power of God in Jesus. Now, Father, give us love for those who are suffering from the blindness that once covered our eyes, from the hardness of heart that was once our own. Father, open our eyes, all of us. Unharden our hearts, Father. Let us embrace Jesus and be willing to suffer in his army, in his train. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.